This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone. I hope you're keeping safe and well. I just wanted to make all listeners aware that while I have made every effort to ensure I get some tricky pronunciations just right for this episode, I'd like to apologize in advance if I do get something wrong. While this story will be extremely distressing for some listeners, it's necessary to share to give you a true and accurate description of Banaz's life and death. Please take care when listening. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the episode description where you can find links to further support. Banaz Mahmood was a young woman living in the United Kingdom whilst being simultaneously imprisoned by the strict beliefs of her culture. After a childhood spent in a war-torn country, her family escaped for a safer life in the UK. But Western culture clashed deeply within her community, and she was torn between honouring her family and honouring herself. Ultimately, choosing herself meant choosing to go against her family, and for them, there was no greater shame and only one adequate punishment. Death. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. To understand Banaz's story, you must first understand the culture in which she was raised. The story begins in the years of control imposed by Saddam Hussein during his dictatorship of Iraq. Under his control was an Iraqi ethnic group called Kurds, whose demographic spread to much of Western Asia and especially to the rural mountain regions of Kurdistan in Iraq. One of the towns that belonged to Iraqi Kurdistan 
called Kaladiza, was home to the Mirawadale tribe. A man named Mahmud Babakir Mahmud was a member of that tribe and was the eldest of four brothers. He was a strongly cultured Iraqi who valued his family's reputation above everything and fought to maintain its honor. While serving as a soldier, Mahmud Babakir Mahmud married a woman named Bea. Little is known about Bea, except the couple spent much of their early married years in the town of Kualdiza, building their life and family. Over time, they had children of their own, one son and five daughters. First, there was Biza, who was born eight years before Banaz. She was forced into an arranged marriage to a man who controlled her every move. The next of Banaz's sisters was Bakal, who was born two years before her. Bakal was a strong-willed and independent young woman, both of which are not seen as attractive qualities for women in the Mirawadale culture. Two years after Banaz was born, her little sister Payman arrived. Banaz always called her little sister by her nickname, Paisi, and the two sisters were the closest of the siblings. There was one final sister born after Paisi, though, due to her age, her name has remained concealed. Then came the youngest child and only son of the family, Baman. Banaz was born on the 16th of December 1985 and was described as a gracious person with a heart of gold. She was self-aware and empathetic, and those who knew her could never recall an instance when she had raised her voice or got angry with anyone. She was conscious of how words and actions could hurt others' feelings. Banaz's only desire was to live a happy life. Devastatingly, the opportunity to achieve this simple dream was stolen from her by those she trusted the most. In 1995, when Banaz was just 10 years old, the family fled the violence in Iraq and sought asylum in the United Kingdom. But while they left their home and belongings behind, Mahmoud and his brother ensured they brought their brutal traditions with them. Despite Mahmoud being the oldest brother of the family, his younger sibling, Ari, took the role of head of the family. Whilst a patriarchal structure isn't too different from other cultures, there are certain aspects of their belief system which set them apart. Ari believed that as head of the family, it was his responsibility to control the lives of every woman in the family. This included controlling what they wore, who they spoke to, who they married, and even how they experienced pleasure. He took his position very seriously, and as each of Banaz's female siblings turned 10 years old, they were subjected to female genital mutilation. FGM is also known as female circumcision. The origin of male circumcision was for hygiene and to prevent infection. In more recent times, it is usually carried out for religious or medical reasons. 
it is almost always carried out on newborn or young infants in a medical environment. In contrast, female circumcision is usually carried out specifically to remove the ability of a woman to feel sexual pleasure. Female genital mutilation is a painful procedure, which usually involves the removal of the clitoral hood, clitoral glands, inner labia and outer labia. FGM plays a huge role in taking away a female's sexuality. In many cultures, young girls and women are circumcised as a means to ensure their virginity until marriage and to increase the pleasure they provide their husbands. In some cultures, the vulva is sewn shut with only a small opening left for menstrual fluid to pass through. When the girl is then married off, the hole will be made wide enough for intercourse and widened again in preparation for childbirth. Putting aside the brutality and intention of the procedure itself for a moment, another concerning aspect of this process is that it is usually carried out by a person with little to no medical experience and in an unsterile environment without pain relief. And that is exactly how it was for Banaz and her sisters. For instance, her older sister, Bikal, was operated on by their grandmother, who deliberately struck a nerve ending during the procedure. This left Bekal permanently injured on top of the pain of the procedure itself. FGM is outlawed in many countries, and there are ongoing campaigns to put an end to the practice altogether. But for most women who experience this procedure, it is carried out under a shroud of silence and protection, enabled by the devout cultures they are born into. Naturally, FGM leaves not just physical scars, but emotional trauma too. After arriving in the United Kingdom, the Mahmoud family moved into a sparse, semi-detached house at 225 Morden Road, Morden, which is a suburb of southwest London. Mahmoud's younger brother and head of the family lived just a few miles away in Mitcham. His proximity enabled him to retain control over the women in Banaz's family. Ari was the wealthiest of his four siblings, and he owned several supermarkets in the area. He was also involved in projects to transform a large property on Wandsworth Road in South Lambeth into flats. Ari lived in a modern house with his wife and children, two daughters and a son. Despite Ari's wealth, Banaz and her family lived in near poverty as neither of her parents were able to land a job given that they didn't speak English. By the time the family touched down in the UK, the oldest sister, Bizarre, had been married off and was sent to live with her new husband. The other children, including Banaz, were enrolled at a local school 
and given their first insight into life outside their strict cultural upbringing. Given that Banaz was a gentle and peaceful person, she didn't have much desire to cause any issues at home. While she experienced Western culture at school, when she returned home, she maintained the behaviour that was expected of her. Be quiet, do what you're told, cook and clean, and be invisible. Her older sister, Bikal, took an entirely different approach. She was already known as the rebellious sister, and she began to display aspects of the Western culture which went directly against her parents' beliefs. Bikal was aware that her behaviour wouldn't be tolerated, and she went to great lengths to hide what she was up to. But there were some things she couldn't hide, like growing her nails, plucking her eyebrows and wearing perfume. Every time she was caught, she would endure a violent beating from her father, all under the watchful eye of her similarly controlled mother. What Bikal would come to realise was that she wasn't safe outside the home either. Her uncle Ari had connections with all the Kurdish families in the area. Unbeknownst to her, Ari had told everyone about his five nieces and had set up spies to report to him exactly what the girls got up to. One day, Bikal was walking home from school with an Asian male friend. She wasn't aware that she was being followed by Azad, the son of another one of her uncles. Bikal sat down between two cars, hiding as she lit a cigarette to smoke. Within seconds, Azad stormed up to the pier and hit Bikal's friend with a helmet that he was carrying. By the time she reached home, everyone in the community knew what she had done and all hell broke loose. Above everything, bringing shame on your family was an unforgivable sin. There was a toxic cultural competition between the children of senior members of the community. They took pride in telling adults about other children's misconduct, so the family with no scandals could boast about having the most honourable child, who would ideally be a son. In their minds, women needed to be controlled because they couldn't control themselves and were too easily influenced. After that incident, a meeting led by Ari was conducted immediately. To keep it short, Ari spoke of the disrespect Bikal caused to the community by her choices. After shaming her for her actions, he also commented that if she was his daughter, she would be nothing but ashes. By the age of 16, Bikal had made several attempts to run away. Finally, her abuse was reported to social services and she was placed in the foster care system. Overnight, any trace of her existence was erased from the house and Payman recalls how it was like Bikal had never existed at all. Regardless of Mahmoud's attempt to erase any memory of Bikal, the news of his daughter running away from home spread through the community like wildfire. Her actions reflected poorly on him as a man. In their belief system, Mahmoud was incompetent as a Kurdish man 
since he was incapable of even controlling his daughters. As a consequence, the Mahmud family lost their status in the community and they became outcasts. When any member of the family dared to share their face around the Kurdish folks, they were abused, with some going so far as to threaten to throw petrol bombs at their home. After that, Mahmoud Babakir became desperate to restore his reputation. With Bikal gone and Biza married off, there was just Banaz, Payman, and their youngest sister and only brother, Bahman. Mahmoud's first attempt to restore his reputation was to eliminate Bikal completely. She was already gone from their house, and supposedly from their memory, but Mahmoud wanted her gone for good, as in, dead. Bikal was asked by her brother to meet him at a remote location with a suitcase. As she walked down the path in front of him, he hit her in the head with a dumbbell and wrapped his hand around her neck in an attempt to murder her. Bikal fought back until he let her go. When she tearfully asked her little brother why he had tried to kill her, he started to weep and revealed that their own father had paid him to put an end to the shame she had caused him and their family. After the attempted murder, Bikal went into hiding. In fear of being killed, to this day she never appears in public unless covered from head to toe. While many will see her burqa as a sign of her religion or oppression, for her it's to ensure her safety so that she cannot be identified when she leaves the house. After failing to exact his revenge on Bikal, Mahmoud turned his attention to his next oldest children, Banaz and Payman. At the time, Payman was 15 years old and was sitting her GCSE exams while Banaz was enrolled in college. Despite the future that life in the UK promised them both, their father had far smaller ambitions for them. He had arranged for them to get married to men who were much older so that they wouldn't be able to repeat the mistakes of their sister. In 2003, at the age of 17, Ari and Mahmoud arranged for Banaz to marry a man from the same village they were from in Iraq. His name was Ali Abbas Homar, and he was 10 years older than his bride. Ali was illiterate, and he was described by Banaz as being old-fashioned and, quote, thinking like in 50 years back. As soon as Ali stepped off the plane from Iraq, Banaz was forced to drop out of college and move in with him in a house in Coventry, England. Just like her father, Ali Homar took great joy in exercising control over Banaz. He treated her as if she was his slave rather than his wife. He was both physically and mentally abusive towards her. When he wanted to have sex, he got it, whether she was interested or not. If she refused, Ali would rape her. She was even restricted from using his given name in front of guests. The one time she accidentally called him Ali, he felt disrespected and threatened to stick a knife in her. 
On another occasion, he asked her to spell a word for him. Banaz refused, and as a consequence, he hit her hard enough that she started to bleed from her ears. Because of the constant physical abuse, Banaz began to suffer from memory loss, and she began to keep a diary where she documented his sexual, physical, and verbal abuse, and at the same time, taking photos of the bruises that appeared on her body. Unfortunately, Ali found Banaz's diary and burnt the evidence of what he had done to her. Keep in mind, Banaz was just 17 years old and she normalised what was happening to her. She had been raised to believe women had no say, men were always right, and to complain would only bring shame on her family. She had seen what happened to her sister, and she didn't want to bring the same fate upon herself. She decided, instead, to try and reason with Ali. She confronted him and told him that what he was doing was really hurting her. Whilst he admitted that he was physical with her, he gave no assurances that he would stop. He told Banaz to keep her mouth shut regarding the matter. Over time, Ali convinced her that nobody cared for her and that her family valued him more than her. As her husband, he was allowed to do as he wished with her and to her. For a while, Banaz believed what Ali had told her and she kept her mouth shut. But her agreeable nature just seemed to encourage him and the violence escalated until eventually... She felt she had no choice but to seek advice from her parents. When Mahmoud and Bea confronted Ali regarding what Banaz was telling them, he admitted that he had indeed been beating her. But he also offered an explanation. He was only doing so because of her disrespectful behaviour towards him. He admitted to raping her, but only when she said no to him. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given their opinion of women and their role in society, her parents saw no wrong in what he was doing. Instead, they advised their daughter to stay with Ali, as leaving him would bring shame on the family. They sent her back, telling her to be a better wife. After that, Ali's behaviour escalated even further. In July 2005, Two years into their marriage, on an otherwise normal day, Ali looked at Banaz and told her, quote, Look at yourself in the mirror. Like, how have you become so ugly and skinny? Though his choice of words were cruel and hurtful, it wasn't the first time Banaz had heard them. Her sister, Bikal, had secretly visited Banaz and she too had noticed a significant change, both in her appearance and in her personality. Whilst Banaz had always been quiet, she now appeared like a shell of herself. Her eyes were always looking at the floor, and she struggled to hold a conversation. When Bikal said those words, it was from a place of concern, but when it came to Ali... Those words were intended to hurt. Banaz decided there and then 
that she had had enough of this torture, and on that day, she phoned her mother and told her she was getting a divorce. She gathered several of her belongings and left for her parents' house, leaving her husband behind. She knew her culture, and she knew that leaving her husband was absolutely forbidden, but she simply couldn't bear any more of his physical and emotional abuse. The response from her parents was as Banaz had expected, but she was steadfast in her decision. A month after leaving her husband, she began a secret relationship with another man. This time, it was a person that she chose, not someone who had been chosen for her. Ramat Suleiman quickly became the centre of Banaz's world. Within months, the two had fallen deeply in love, and the woman Banaz had been before her terrifying marriage to Ali began to emerge again. Not a morning went by without Banaz texting him a good morning, expressing her love and appreciation for his presence in her life. Despite the secrecy and the risk of their relationship, Banaz and Ramah decided they would spend the rest of their lives together. They were excited about the future and had already picked out names for their children. But the secret didn't stay hidden for long, and soon enough, Banaz's worst fears began to become a reality. She was already a target since she had gone against her parents, her uncle and her culture by filing for divorce. But starting a new relationship with someone from outside put her directly in the crosshairs. Banaz began to notice that when she left the house, she was being followed by a group of men. On one of these occasions, Ramat and Banaz were photographed kissing near a grocery shop next to the Morden station, but she realized too late that they were being watched. On the 2nd of December 2005, these men informed Ari about what they had seen. Ari was infuriated by Banaz's blatant disrespect. He believed that her choices reflected on him. If he didn't take action, he would look like a man who had no control over his family, and in particular, his women. That night... Ari called a meeting with Banaz's father. In a sign of what was to come, they referred to this meeting as a council of war. In their minds, Banaz and Ramat's relationship was equivalent to war. Their meeting was to decide what action would take place to put an end to it once and for all. During the meeting, the group discussed their options. But for Ari... There was no choice. There was only one path forward. Banaz and Rama would both have to die. As head of the family, Ari's decision was not questioned, not even by her father. When the plan was set, Ari rang Banaz's mother and told her what was going to happen. Her daughter was going to be killed. She had already lost one daughter when the family had shunned her 
and now she was about to lose another. And still, Bea didn't object to the plan. She agreed that this is what was required to stop any further damage to the family name. Unbeknownst to Bea, Banaz was listening in on that phone call from another room. She heard the conviction in her uncle's voice, and she knew this wasn't a simple threat. Ari was deadly serious. We can only imagine what it must have felt like for her to not only hear her uncle discuss her murder so casually, but then to realise that her parents were fully on board with the plan. On the 4th of December, Banaz decided to seek help. She travelled to the Wimbledon police station, where she told the officers about the threats her uncle Ari had made against her and Roma. She also explained all of the abuse that she had endured during her marriage to Ali, which is why she had left him in the first place. She went on to explain how, in her culture, it was a disgraceful act for a woman to divorce their husband, and it was punishable by death. Banaz specifically told the police not to speak with Ari or anyone else involved, as it would only make things worse. She simply wanted to make a record of it in case something happened to her. Despite being presented with the frightened but determined woman in front of them, the police offered no support or made any suggestions for things Banaz could do to keep herself safe. The next day, a detective from the station decided to pay Banaz a visit at her parents' house. This visit was observed by other members of the community and Ali became aware that his defiant niece had gone to the police, which further enraged him. On the 12th of December 2005, Banaz went back to the police station and handed over a letter containing the names, details, workplaces and even the colour of the cars of five men whom she had heard would be the ones to kill her. According to Ramah, Banaz was given this information from one of Ari's daughters. Once again, the police sent Banaz on her way with no further action being taken. By now, both Ramah and Banaz were certain that it was only a matter of time before one of them, or both of them, would be targeted by Ari or one of his thugs, and they were right to be worried. On New Year's Eve, Banaz was washing dishes at her parents' house when her father, Mahmoud, asked her to come with him to her grandmother's house to sort out her divorce from Ali. Mahmoud drove them both to the grandmother's house using a different route than usual. When they arrived, he told her to switch off her mobile phone and handed her an empty suitcase to carry inside. Banaz immediately noticed the house was dark with all the curtains drawn. Mahmoud told her to sit on the sofa and handed her a glass of brandy. Banaz had never drank alcohol, and it took her by surprise when her father asked her to drink it. As she sipped the burning liquid, he started to ask about Banaz's relationship with Ramar. As the conversation progressed, he persuaded her to drink more alcohol and then asked if she felt sleepy. 
When half of the bottle was gone, Mahmoud asked her to turn away from him and face the television. In the reflection of the TV, Banaz caught a glimpse of her father creeping up to her with his hands wrapped in blue rubber gloves. Despite her intoxication, she realized her father was attempting to kill her. She tried to get up, but was pushed back onto the sofa. As Mahmoud then walked into another room to grab something, Banaz realized that her father had left the key in the lock of the back door and she made a run for it, escaping into the back garden. She punched through the next-door neighbor's window in an attempt to seek help, but the house was empty, so she climbed over the fence, stumbled across the street, and ended up on the floor of the Heart and Soul Café. The staff there called an ambulance and police to the scene, but sadly, this incident became yet another missed opportunity to help Banaz. A female officer took a statement from the frightened and intoxicated Banaz. She was disbelieving of her story, and her report described the woman as melodramatic and manipulative. It was later discovered that she hadn't reported this case to the CID, which is against protocol. Despite the female officer's insensitivity, Ramah was called to be with Banaz at the hospital. He had the presence of mind to record Banaz on his mobile phone as she described the frightening event. The next day, Banaz discharged herself from hospital and stayed at Ramah's home. What came next was deja vu for the Mahmoud family. Once again, they were begging their daughter not to run away as it would shame their name. Mahmoud requested a meeting with Ramah and Banaz. The pair agreed, and Mahmoud kissed Ramah's hand and wept about how his brother Ari had pushed him to kill Banaz. After the meeting, her parents called Banaz several times, apologizing and pleading with her to come home. Banaz wanted nothing more than a normal family and for her parents to accept her. She wanted to believe that they were very, very sorry for what they had done and she chose to forgive them and return home. It was around this time that the female police officer involved in the initial incident visited Banaz to charge her for breaking the window of her grandmother's neighbour. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. In early January 2006, Banaz and Rama declared that they had separated in an attempt to get Ari and Mahmoud to leave them alone. But behind closed doors, the pair were growing closer than ever. Meanwhile, Ari and Mahmoud were still angry about the shame Banaz had brought on their family. The separation made no difference to them. The damage had already been done. On the 22nd of January, Ramar was due to visit a friend in Hounslow on the outskirts of West London. As he left the house accompanied by a couple of friends... A Ford Focus pulled up alongside him. Inside were four men, three of whom he recognised as the men Banaz had mentioned in her letter. The men attempted to drag him from the car, and when they failed, they shouted, You cannot carry on what you are doing. You are not English. You are Kurdish and Muslim, and you are going to die. Rama texted Banaz to tell her what had happened, and she replied, just be careful, Rama, because I don't think I could live a second without you. Despite her frequent contact with the police, Banaz had never made a formal complaint. But this recent incident involving Rama tipped her over the edge. On the 23rd of January 2006, she made a formal statement against her family. PC Alison Way was responsible for taking Banaz's statement and she tried to convince her to stay at a safe house until she was able to meet with her the following day. But Banaz was adamant about returning home to her parents' house as her mother was there. She told the officer, quote, She will not let anything happen to me. But Banaz never showed up to her appointment the following day and Rama never received his usual good morning text. Given the circumstances, Rama immediately reported Banaz as missing. Yet again, the police didn't take his report seriously, despite him retelling what he knew of Banaz's story from the beginning to the end. Police officers decided to speak with Banaz's family to get to the bottom of what was going on. They visited her parents' home, where they were greeted by a mother and father who were the complete opposite of the people Rama had described. Mahmoud and Bea claimed to be liberal parents who allowed their children to stay out overnight, which is why they hadn't reported Banaza's missing. But Rama insisted the officers look more closely and take his report seriously. Finally, the police agreed and Detective Chief Inspector Caroline Goody of the Metropolitan Police Murder and Serious Crime Command was assigned to lead the investigation. She worked closely with the Detective Inspector who had spoken with Rama. They both agreed that with the many visits Banaz had made to the station, as well as Rama's statement, there was certainly something more going on than Banaz's parents would have them believe. Initially, they believed that Banaz was potentially being held against her will. Her phone wasn't active and her accounts hadn't been touched, but there was no indication of any harm having come to her. Caroline requested Mahmoud, Ari and Bea be formally interviewed in relation to Banaz's disappearance. Each one 
described themselves as supportive of the pair's relationship. Ari and Mahmoud both denied any contact with each other in relation to Banaz and denied that they would ever harm a family member. But despite their claims of innocence, on the 28th of January, Mahmoud and Ari were arrested and treated as suspects rather than witnesses. This action caused both men to become aggressive and defensive, which was in complete contrast to how they had presented themselves up until that point. Caroline's next task was to arrest three of the men mentioned in Banaz's original letter to the police. Omar Hussein and Mohammed Ali were individually arrested and questioned. Their story was that they were in support of the pair's relationship and never attempted to kidnap Ramar. In their version of events, they had simply had a friendly conversation with him because he had lied about splitting up with Banaz. They were both granted bail and released. Mohammed Hamar was harder to track down, but after police left a message with an acquaintance, he confidently handed himself in to the police on the 2nd of February. He gave the same story as Omar and Mohammed Ali. By the time Mohammed Hamar handed himself in, Omar and Mohammed Ali had left the United Kingdom and returned to Iraq. Fearing that he would do the same, Mohammed Hamar was kept in custody. During that time, he was identified by Ramar as being one of the men who had tried to abduct him and who had threatened to kill him over his relationship with Banaz. While in custody, Mohammed Hamar spoke by phone to an acquaintance who had encouraged him to come forward. These calls were recorded and later interpreted. During these conversations, Mohammed Hamar confirmed Ramaz and the police's worst fears. Banaz was dead, but the worst was yet to come. Mohammed went into explicit detail as he described the last excruciating hours of Banaz's life. He boasted and laughed about how he and his friends had abducted her and put her through two hours of hell. They had taken Banaz to a location and had taken turns anally raping her. Banaz was so scared and in so much pain that she repeatedly vomited, which caused the men to become even more violent with her. They took a cord and wrapped it around her neck three times, and they pulled on it so tightly that it bit into her skin around her neck. Mohammed then placed his feet on Banaz's back to give him even more leverage as he continued to pull the cord. Right before she suffocated to death, they released the tension on the cord and she gasped for breath. They repeated this cycle for more than an hour and a half. It was a horrific game of chicken, with each of the men seeing how far she would go before she passed out. Eventually, Banaz's brutalized body could take no more and she suffocated for the final time. After she died, the men stuffed her body into a suitcase which they handed over to Ari. Ari drove the suitcase to an acquaintance home where he buried his niece unceremoniously in the middle of the back garden. Unfortunately, during that recorded call, Mohammed didn't reveal the exact location of where the suitcase had been buried. All he said was that it was buried deep in the back garden of Omar's friend's house. 
With that, the investigation kicked into high gear. They now had confirmation that Banaz was dead and they knew who was involved. Now all attention was focused on finding her remains. Officers looked into phone records of the men who had gone back to Iraq, which showed that around the time of the murder, they were frequently travelling in and out of London. Based on these records, Caroline and her team visited a number of addresses, including ones taken from Mohammed Hamas' car GPS. Helicopters flew over the homes and attempted to identify any potential burial sites, while officers interviewed and translated conversations with members of the Kurdish community. But true to their nature, the Kurds closed ranks and went to great lengths to shield each other from the police. They were more interested in protecting a killer than they were in protecting a murdered young woman. The strongest lead in identifying the location of Banaz's body was a simple question Mohammed had made to a friend in another recorded phone conversation. Did you put the freezer back? By April 2006, several helicopters and Caroline's team had gathered photographs and video of all the suspected addresses. Whilst they looked over the footage, there was one address that stood out. Caroline remembered visiting a home at 86 Alexandra Road, Hansworth, and when she reviewed the aerial footage, officers could see a freezer seemingly out of place in the middle of the back garden of the property. After visiting the address, a forensic archaeologist pointed out that there had been a disturbance in the earth right beneath the freezer. After a long excavation, they were able to recover a suitcase that was buried six feet into the earth. Banaz's hair and elbow were poking out of the suitcase, and when they opened it, they found her squeezed into the fetal position, wearing nothing but knickers and the cord still wrapped around her neck. Her body was in an advanced state of decomposition, the suitcase had been discarded in a position which was located beneath a leaking pipe, leaving her body to rot for three months before she was found. With the discovery of her body, Mohammed Marid Hama and Banazi's uncle, Ari Aga Mahmoud, her cousins, Mohammed Saleh Ali, Omar Hussein and Dana Amin, were all charged with murder. In May 2006, Banazi's own father was also charged with murder. Caroline personally flew to Iraq to extradite Mohammed Ali and Omar Hussein to the United Kingdom to face their charges. Mohammed Ali, Omar Hussein, and Mohammed Hama each pled guilty to murdering Banaz. Ari and Mahmoud pled guilty to conspiring to kill Banaz, and all of them were sentenced to life in prison with minimum terms starting at 17 years. Devastatingly, it was those closest to Banaz responsible for ending her life. From a childhood in a war-torn country, to genital mutilation in the name of their culture and a forced marriage to a violent man. Her life 
was marked with trauma and abuse. And yet, through it all, Bernaz remained a kind, gentle, and loving woman who was finally about to find a small piece of happiness amongst all that pain. And yet, her family couldn't leave her to it. Her killers and her community defended her murder as an honour killing. But how is death at the hands of your family an honour? How is death of a good, kind woman an honour? Despite the horror of her murder, her family had one final insult to make in Banaz's memory. Her family told the police that her funeral was to be held at Regent's Park Mosque, but on the day of the service, they instead went to a mosque in Tutin. Officers involved in the investigation were all set to attend the service when they found out about the change on the day. But when they rushed to get there in time, they discovered that there was no service. Caroline recalls, quote, They had deliberately lied to us to prevent us being present. When we arrived at Tutin, it was obvious that plans had not been made for a funeral. The family had pitched up there with no warning. They went in for prayers, leaving their daughter's body on a side road. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that it was only our presence that forced the family to hold a funeral. Banaz's family was so devout in their justification of her murder that even at her funeral they couldn't bring themselves to honour her memory. And that is the greatest dishonour of all. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.